podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. Well, if we're going to be talking about the rackets, chances are it probably makes sense for us to talk with someone who was convicted of racketeering. Let me tell you something. You are about to hear from one of the most interesting people, period. He's not just one of the most interesting people in the annals of organized crime history. He's not one of the most interesting people in the annals of the criminal justice system. He he has led and does lead a fascinating, fascinating life. He is a best-selling author. He is one of the most sought-after experts and guests on the subject related to organized crime and many prominent mafia uh, leaders in this country. I am very, very pleased to welcome the author of the book, The Accidental Gangster, from insurance salesman to mob boss of Hollywood, the one and only Ori Spado. Ori, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Frank. How are you this evening? I am doing. Uh, I am doing just fine. I really can't recommend your book enough. It's read. It's been read by law enforcement officials. It's been read by self-proclaimed mafiologists. It's been read by people who just like a good story, and they've all said uh, grow, just glowing, glowing things about it. And uh, you can absolutely understand why, because there are just so many interesting stories that you tell in here. And the difficulty in interviewing someone like you is in terms of where to begin, because we. We could begin with your 62 months that you served in federal prison. We could begin with chronologically the beginning of your life. We could begin with the origins of your relationship with John Sonny Franzese. I guess, though, the where I'll begin is with the title of your book, The Accidental Gangster. How does someone become an accidental gangster? You know, Frank, that originated in my head while walking the yard when I was in prison in Lompoc. Being an avid reader all my life, and right to this day, I still read every single day. I always have books on my nightstand next to me. I read I read myself to sleep every night. While in prison, I read over 300 books in my uh, 62 months that I did. And not dreaming that I would ever re- write a book, but, you know, you got nothing to do when you're in prison but think. Think and do your time. And I'm walking the yard and said, if I ever wrote a book, I would call it The Accidental Gangster. And then let the people read the book and let them decide was it accidental or not. And that's how the name derived. And at that point, I still didn't think I would ever write a book. But because of a lot of things that I did in Hollywood, I happened to be represented by the most prominent entertainment law firm in Hollywood. And upon my release, I was having dinner at the Four Seasons uh, with George Ham uh, from the law firm. 
And I told George, different people from Hollywood were contacting me about doing a reality show, doing this show. And George just put down his knife and fork, and he looked at me, and he says, write a book. I know your story. You write a book, and we'll get a movie made. I said, George, I never wrote a book. He says, find a co-writer. Well, all the writers I know here in Hollywood are script writers. And writing a script and writing a book are two different things. So one day I just sat here and I said, how hard could this be? Can I have a beginning, a middle, and an end? And I sat down and I was about two-thirds of the way through with my book when I ran across an old friend that I went to high school who was a writer and wrote over 20 books, Dennis Griffin. And Dennis became, uh, we called him co-author, but he was actually the editor of my first book. And that's how my book was born. And uh, since then, uh, we published another book. I did an updated version of it. Uh, It's been out for one year. We sold over 10,000 copies, which is not too shabby in the book world. Especially not these days. That's tremendous. Now, a lot of authors are uh, are envious of those those kind of sales. Now, Ori, there's so many, you've had so many different careers and so many different professions. As the title of your book suggests, you've been an insurance salesman. You've also served honorably in the United States Army. You're from upstate New York originally. But so many of the adventures that you've had, so many of the occasions that you've had to rub elbows with bold-faced names and to uh, be in a position to tell a lot of these interesting stories, deal with your time as a so-called Hollywood fixer. Uh, You know, I know a lot of people might be familiar with the concept of a fixer on a television program like Ray Donovan. Is that what you were doing? Were you you, uh, like a Ray Donovan of your era? Yes, I was. And and uh, reality, a couple of the episodes they did on the first season of Ray Donovan were actually a couple of things that I actually had done. And how the word got up, I don't know. But, you know, they did it and they made it more Hollywood, you follow me? You know, sure. uh, because I handled my problems sitting down uh, with the parties and I resolved them nicely. Uh, with my demeanor, the way I talk, and the way I'm able to phrase things for people to under- really understand, you know, the yeah. reality of what's going on. Uh, that began with Dino De Laurentiis and Ralph Serpy, who were very dear friends of mine, uh, way back in the 70s. And that's how I began, and word got out how I corrected a problem, and agents, lawyers, studios started contacting me. And I did it nice and quietly. I did my job, never talked about it. 
and I still don't talk about them. <laughs> I guess that's the uh, I guess that's the key to solving a lot of this stuff uh, quickly is uh, doing it discreetly. Okay, uh, we got to talk about your relationship with John Sonny Franzese. Now, if people aren't familiar with John Sonny Franzese, he was uh, probably one of the most powerful organized crime figures in the whole country. He was at times either the underboss of the or the acting boss of the Colombo crime family and was someone that lived to be 103 and was a pretty powerful presence within the Colombo crime family until almost literally the the day that he died. How did you get to know John Sonny Franzese? Uh, you know, that's a really good story. Uh, before I met Sonny, I had actually met Frank, Frank Costello, Russell Buffalino, uh, Carlo Marcello. I mean, I knew all these guys. But, you know, I knew them on business dealings. And Walter Fison, who, and this is really a funny story, Frank, because it's funny that now I'm 77 years old and I'm going to be a speaker on February, on March 12th in Las Vegas at the National Auto Dealer Association Convention in Las Vegas. And they alone purchased 350 books. So I'm very excited about this. I was the pioneer in the automotive after-sale business back in New York. I'm the guy that you could blame that when you go into a car dealership and somebody demos a car, they're not really a salesman today. They We call them demo guys. <laughs> they demo the car. They take you for a ride in it. You like it. They bring back to the dealership and they say, uh, you got to talk with my business manager, my finance manager, my general manager, whatever they want to call it. And that guy is going to take you, make the deal on the car, wants you to finance the car there through the dealership, and then he wants you buy the credit life and accident health insurance, and buy the paint sealant, the rust proofing, the automobile alarm, the warranty, and the sun and the moon. He'll sell you everything. And I'm the guy that trained the salespeople in dealerships how to do that. I had a school in upstate New York. So I was a pioneer in that there business. And one of the products was a gentleman named Walter Fison out of Scarsdale, New York, at a company called Polyglycol. And Polyglycol was a paint sealant. You might remember it. No need to ever shine your car again, guaranteed for three years. We were on television 24 hours a day throughout the country. And that was one I took that on with Walter Fison. Walter and I became great friends. Uh, out in Nassau County, out near where you live, uh, he gave the distributorship there to his brother-in-law, who happened to be related to Michael Franchise. Mm. And Michael got involved with him. And they were stealing warranties from the bottom of the pack out of the home office. And they were selling a lesser product and calling it polyglycol. And all of a sudden, Walter's getting these claims 
on warranty numbers that he had never issued yet. <laughs> we found out it was Michael, and then death threats came, and Walter, Walter came to me. I was down in Pompano Beach. He was in Boca Raton by this time. And he asked me to come in and close Victor Potomkin Cadillac. Remember Victor Potomkin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, uh, we wanted that deal, and he asked me to come in to help him close the deal. So I flew in. We closed the deal. Victor brought us to lunch at Club 21 in New York there. And uh, this is before cell phones. And Walter went to call his office. He came back. What is a ghost? He had another death threat. And he leaned over and he says, kid, I know you're wired in. He says, you got to stay over. He says, you got to find this something out about this. So I stayed over. And uh, I called my friend Frank Russo. He told me to call Lou Perry. Lou Perry is the guy who discovered D. Martin and Jerry Lewis. And he was a casting agent on 57th Street. I called Lou. He called me back. He said, I'll pick you up at your hotel at 7 o'clock. I remember this. It was yesterday. And we went to a restaurant on 2nd Avenue, Trattatoria Ciciliana. Immediately walking in, I knew it was a mobbed-up place. I had no idea who I was going to meet. And I just look around. I could tell who's at the bar. I could tell who's who. I could tell where the FBI is sitting, where, where the other guys were sitting. And then he brings me in the back and sitting at a big table was Sonny Frances. With his wife, Tina, his son, Johnny, his daughter, Gia, and his daughter, Tina. He had his whole family there, everybody except Michael. Uh, well, we're going to get to Michael in uh, a little bit, but uh, that was a relationship that you maintained with uh, Sonny Frenzies for decades, right? Right up until the, actually, I'm the guy who announced his death. I was the one who first announced his death. It's published. You, there are so many stories of criminal defendants that I know who have gone to prison because they've done something wrong. Uh, sometimes uh, their prison sentence doesn't reflect what they feel is their actual degree of wrongdoing. And then there are a lot of uh, other instances, particularly in conspiracy cases, that of people that I know who've gone to prison because they were associated with some people that were breaking laws. In your case, the 62 months that you did for a RICO conviction in which you were indicted alongside Sonny Franzese back, I guess, in 2008, do you believe that was because you did something wrong or illegal, or do, are you a victim of the relationships that you had with Sonny Franzese and others? Well, in all honesty... I believe the true reason that I got indicted was in 1997, the FBI out here were after me. They tried to get me to become an informant. They pressed me hard. And what I did was instead of recording anybody else, I recorded the FBI. That was a big mistake. I ended up having 12 
tapes of me taping the FBI. And I went on record. Sonny was in prison. And I knew I was going to get in trouble. And you got to remember something which most people don't realize. Here I am with Sonny Franchese back east. But out here, I was with Jimmy Cocci, who was the underboss of the Los Angeles family. And it was like a crazy thing. When, I, when I'd when be in New York, I stayed at the Warwick. Sonny was living with me at the Warwick. And when out here, Monday morning, Jimmy Cocci came from Palm Springs, and he was living with me during the week up here, and he and I were doing things. But we went on record with Joe Todaro, the boss of Buffalo with me taping the FBI. And Joe actually wanted me to keep doing it, but I knew I had to go on record because I knew I would get in trouble for it. Now, explain, explain to folks what was your rationale. What were you trying to do in in recording the FBI? Well, the FBI, they just wanted the Italians. I wanted to get, you know, how they're only looking for Italians, how they're looking to, you know, uh, you know, to create a problem, to bring somebody in on a conspiracy. That's what they do, okay? A lot of conspiracy charges are created by the informant. Like my, my conspiracy charge on cocaine, that was all started by an informant. And he brought me and the uh, acting captain of the Colombo family, Michael Cotapano, well, Michael and I never discussed drugs. I was never in the cocaine business. And I would never go in the cocaine business. And Michael and I never discussed it, but that became two of the charges. Michael and I were both charged with cocaine conspiracy. And it was all created by an informant that Sonny sent out here to Los Angeles. <coughs> and at the same time that he was sitting here, I took care of some Jamaican guys and Haitian guys, and there was a Jamaican boy named Ricky Lee. He was a big drug dealer, made a shitload of money, had a big home up in Hollywood Hills. Uh, and I was actually God's father to his daughter, mm. and uh, he got caught for uh, shipping product to North Carolina. And they busted him at his home. I lawyered him up out here. His wife came over here at the same time the informant was here with the two Mexicans that he owed a half a million dollars to. And the money was on the streets in Brooklyn. I knew the guys who owed the money. I picked up the phone. I called them right then and there. And they said, all right, look, he don't understand, you know, we converting the coke into crack and, you know, uh, it's taking longer, but we got 100000 ready. And the informant said, oh, I got somebody, I'll send them right away. You got to remember, this guy, this guy, his name was Guy Fatato. Sonny endorsed this guy like you can't believe, guaranteed him. And... Every word that I ever said to him, every word that Sonny ever said to him, was all on tape. And that became a cocaine conspiracy charge on me when there was no intention. Because he, now he starts talking, we picked up the 100 grand. They never gave me the other 400 grand. And 
Uh, there's a lot, another whole story, and I could tell you what happened with that four hundred grand. Uh, but uh, why, why, Ori, did you choose to take a plea rather than take your case to trial? If I went to trial, I, I, I was going to go to trial, and I got very lucky that I got severed from the trial of Sonny Franchise. Because there, what happened, you got to remember, Sonny and I were very close. I mean, Sonny would call me for anything. And the words were, hey, buddy, you got to come in. I got to talk to you. And I fly in. You know, they call, you go. And this time, he didn't call me. And the informant was going back to New York and telling the captain, Michael Cotapano, all the money they're going to make on this big cocaine deal with Ori. See, he was trying to get the Mexicans to give them 50 kilos every two weeks. And everything's going to go through Ori. I had no intention of doing this. And they weren't going to give us any product because they're still over half a million dollars from Bro- that's on the streets of Brooklyn. They're not going to get no product on the cuff until they get paid. So he's talking to Catapano, and he's got all these big numbers that Catapano thinks he's making with Ori. And I want you to remember, me and Michael Catapano never spoke about it, never had a word about it, never uttered a word about it to each other, because it wasn't going to happen. I had nothing to talk about. But he was talking, and all this is on tape. And then Catapano's getting pissed off because time is going by. He's not seeing no money. And he's asking the informant, what's going on with this deal, Ori? And then the informant says, I think Ori's doing the deal and he's screwing us and not paying us the money. Well, Michael goes to his uncle, who is Sonny. And he gets permission to whack me. Wow. And I found that on a tape. That's how I ended up getting severed from the trial. That was a blessing. It was a blessing. And I remember the last time I spoke to Sonny while we were in prison. He came, Sonny was out on bail. I didn't get bail. And he came in, and I'm sitting at the table in the courtroom. He's standing crying, hey, buddy, I hear you're upset with me. I said, yeah, I am upset, I said. I said, you called me to come here to have a fucking cup of soup with you. I said, but you get word on this. You don't call me and ask me. If you did, we wouldn't be sitting here. We would have known that that guy was an informant. I said, but Sonny, I'm a big man. I can, I accept it. I take it. You know what I mean? And, you know, I didn't hold it against him. I'm a man. Hey. And we still remain friends. Uh, that is a, I was talking to him till a few days before he passed away. Uh, you're a, a better man than me, that's for sure. What was prison like for you? How did you find prison? Well, you know, first prison, you know, I mean, I was, uh, was in Los Angeles and and then uh, Oklahoma and then brought to Brooklyn. When I got to Brooklyn, of course, you know, I was with Tommy Gioli and a lot of the guys, good guys. You know Tommy. Absolutely. You know, and I, I can remember sitting at the table, and Tommy said, Ori, you got no fucking reason. You shouldn't be on this indictment. I said, I know that. I said, but I am. 
The FBI told me in 1997, when they found out I taped them, they were pissed. <laughs> they were pissed out here. And they told me, 1997, we will see the day you are chained, shackled, put on Con Air, and brought to Brooklyn. I want your listeners to remember, they told me that 1997. and 2008, they made it a reality. They did exactly what they said they would do. And that FBI agent... Because of what I did, he got demoted and put on the fugitive squad. Which today, I think he's the head of the fugitive squad, and he's the guy that gets the credit for capturing Whitey Bulger. Wow. Uh, that's why I didn't realize I that. Yeah, a favor. What do you think? <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think you're probably right. Speak, speaking of John Sonny Franzese, now he was a legend in organized crime circles. His son, Michael, has made quite a name for himself and quite a career as a motivational speaker, as an author, as a filmmaker, as sort of one of the go-to pundits on mafia matters. He was uh, apparently a, a, a captain in the Colombo crime family, and then he renounced the life of La Cosa Nostra, but evidently did so without, without doing what a lot of people who go the other way doing and testifying against some of his former criminal compatriots. It seems like you and Michael have had sort of a, an interesting relationship over the years. Needless to say, do you not have the same fondness for Michael that you did for his father, Sonny? No way at all. I'll say this about Michael, and if anybody watched the Vlad interviews, I happen to know a lot about Michael. And I don't know if you watched the Vlad interviews that I did. I had over 4 million views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've seen them, but many of our listeners may not have. They might... There were, a, a war was beginning to brew between Michael and I. Michael was saying bullshit about me, but I had the truth. I had buckets of paperwork on Michael Franchise. And, but, and Vlad wanted to do an interview with both of us in the studio. And he was willing to pay us a pretty good dollar to do it. And I turned it down when he called me up. I turned Vlad down, and I said, you know, I got nothing to gain. I'm not like all these other guys out there that have podcasts that are talking, because I never informed against anybody. Those guys who out there who got these podcasts and informed, they got clemency for the murders they've done and everything that they did, they could talk about anything. I can't, and I won't. And so that's a big difference. So I don't want to be involved in what they do. I took my whole thing a different route. I don't want nothing to do more to do with the life. I'm out of the life. But I'm doing good. I'm helping a lot of young men out. And so I did a video, and I ended the war with Michael Franchese. He and I had a few uh, words over Facebook Messenger after that there. Uh, I give Michael a lot of credit for what he does do. Uh, 
you know, he did supposedly turn to a religious guy. He's got a church. Uh, Michael, uh, for absolutely, is a very intelligent guy. There's no question. He wanted to become a doctor originally, and he could have been a doctor. Michael was a smart guy, and I'll give him credit there. And that's about the most I'm going to say about Michael Franchise. Fair enough. Uh, if people are just tuning in, well, I guess chances are if you've clicked on the podcast, you know who you're listening to. But uh, we're talking with Ori Spado. He's the author of the book, The Accidental Gangster, From Insurance Salesman to Mob Boss of Hollywood. Let me ask you about that title, Mob Boss of Hollywood. There have been a few sort of infamous people over the years that have had that title as you have. People like Jack Dragna, people like Bugsy Siegel, people like Mickey Cohen. And then usually you're just described as the sort of the fourth mob boss of Hollywood. Do you feel like that's an accurate characterization? Were you the mob boss of Hollywood? I never thought I was. But, you know, let me tell you the story, how it began. The real boss out here, his name was Pete Milano. And like I told you, Jimmy Cacci and I were very close friends. Jimmy's brother, Bobby Milano, that a lot of people probably knew him. Bobby was a great singer. His real name was Charlie Cacci from Buffalo also. He was married to Keely Smith. And Bobby passed away. He he was very sick. I was going to put him up at the Queen Mary, uh, give him his own room up there to sing on weekends and so forth. And... Uh, he got so so fast, he got sick. And I remember it was a Saturday morning. I drove down to the desert because I was leaving on Sunday to go to New York. And uh, he was laying in his bed, and his sister was here, and his brother-in-law from Buffalo, Keeley, everybody was at the house. And Charlie said, told everybody he wanted to see me. And I went into the bedroom, I laid on the bed, I said, What's up, Charlie? I called him Charlie. Everybody else called him Bobby. I said, you're worried about your brother? He says, yeah. I said, don't worry about Jimmy, Charlie. Worry about yourself. I want you to get better. I said, I'm going to have you on the Queen Mary. You're going to knock the lights right out over there. I said, don't worry about Jimmy. I'll take care of Jimmy. And he grabs my hand and with both his hands. I will never forget. He says, Ori, do you promise you'll take care of Jimmy? I says, you got my promise, Charlie. He says, because, Ori, your word is the best in the world. I'll never forget that. I left there crying. I flew to New York. I got there Sunday. I called Jimmy. Charlie had died. He passed away. They had a one-day service for him in, in the desert. And Pete Milano sent two guys down for their condolences. You know what their condolences were? What's that? They w- went to Jimmy, and they told Jimmy that you got to talk to Ori because everybody thinks Ori is the mob boss of Hollywood. That comes from a boss. Passing that word to the underboss, 
that tell me that. You know what Jimmy told him? Jimmy told him, he says, tell Pete to go fuck himself. But where did that belief come from, that you were the mob boss of, of Hollywood? Was it just due to your relationship with high-profile organized crime figures like uh, Sonny Franzese in the East and Jimmy Cacci in the West? You know, I honestly, you know, look, at I made a lot of moves in Hollywood. I was known at every restaurant, every valet guy in town knew me. Everybody knew me. Any restaurant I walked in, they knew me. I got super service no matter where I went. A lot of times I never got a bill. I always had a couple guys around me, you know what I mean? I had my own guys. I had my own crew. I never did nothing with the guys out here except for Jimmy Conchie. Jimmy and I made a lot of money together out here. And the fights I had with Sonny, and that's like Sonny saying, you're with me, fuck Jimmy. Jimmy saying, you're with me, fuck Sonny. <laughs> can I say fuck? It's a podcast. You can say whatever you like. Uh, we'll edit it out for the radio uh, when we play <laughs> this portion of it. You, yeah. you mentioned a few times the, the Queen Mary. I think people are familiar with the ship, the Queen Mary, and your book. You uh, tell an interesting story about how you came to have a stake in it. What is your involvement with the Queen Mary? Well, that's another funny story. All my stories begin out funny. Jerry Zimmerman introduced me to Queen Mary when Joe Prevatel took it over after Disney abandoned it. Disney literally abandoned the property and the ship. And Joe Prevatel was ahead of the Port of Long Beach. They, the city asked Joe to run the ship, and he was looking for several millions of dollars. And my first meeting, and Jerry, Jerry Zimmerman is an individual. He, he goes back with Sonny Franchise also. It was actually Sonny who introduced Jerry and I together. I mean, and Jerry went way, way back with Sonny. Uh, and, and with Michael. Uh, Jerry was an excellent con man. He, he was really great. But anyways, we went down, had a meeting with him. And I said, let me think about it. I said, uh, I'll make a few calls. What I was doing was a con. And I told him, I went down, I said, I need 25 grand. Boom. He made a call downstairs at the bottom of the ship, and some guy came up with $25,000 in the bag. That 25 grand became 150 I ended up getting. And I was going back and forth to New York. They thought they were borrowing money from the mob. And I was really trying to get it for them. But obviously it didn't happen. There was no collateral because they didn't own the ship. They only owned the lease. At that time, the lease was only for five years, which is not enough to be able to borrow that kind of money on. <clears throat> and so what I did, I remember driving down there, and I looked at that big piece of steel docked there in Long Beach. And I said to myself, this year fucking out of the life, Ori. And I went in there and made a deal with him that I would bring entertainment to the Queen Mary. And which I started doing. And I owed him 
half of that hundred and fifty grand. I owed him seventy five thousand dollars. I told you I won't pay you this money back. I said, Will you take a little bit, take ten percent of my earnings as we go along. And then there's a story about how I got the Titanic exhibit. I won't read it. It's a very long story. I crashed through the through the doors down there at the Battery in New York to uh, the people who had the rights to, to salvage rights to the Titanic. But I ended up bringing them to California, made a deal on the first Titanic exhibit. Honestly, I thought it was going to be a total failure. But we brought it in. I made the deal. I was getting 10% of it. And that movie came out. And that movie, we had lines of people like you can't believe. And I'm sitting here in my home in Beverly Hills. And I'm getting checks in the mail, $17,000, $22,000 a month just for my 10% from the from the Titanic exhibit. Wow. And I was at the Queen Mary in about 2000, and they had added some rides and everything, which was, uh, I think, really, really interesting and interest and uh, kind of added a different element even beyond the whole history of the ship. Was that your doing uh, on the part of the Queen Mary, adding that sort of entertainment exhibit aspect of it? Yeah. All the entertainment there I did, I had. Uh, I took over the dome. I had groups in the dome. Uh, and I did all the exhibits. I did the Marilyn Monroe exhibit. I did the World of Reggae featuring Bob Marley. I did a big, big Russian exhibit uh, that we got from the Petersburg uh, Museum, uh, big museum in Petersburg. Uh, what's the name of it? I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, it was, I mean, the exhibit. I mean, I, be, I became a master in the exhibit business. And then my biggest exhibit was going to be Napoleon Bonaparte. And I went to France, I went to Italy, I went to Island of Elba, uh, Switzerland, I went all over. I had artifacts. But the budget for the Queen Mary, the maximum budget was a half a million dollars. I got up to $3 million exhibit. It was going to be a block, what they call a blockbuster exhibit. And I ended up selling it to the uh, Riverfront Development Center in Wilmington, Delaware for $3 million. That was the cost that I had to pay, you know, to the Italians, the French, and everybody. And plus, I was getting 10%. Plus, I got 10% of uh, ticket sales and of uh, uh, souvenirs. And uh, we figured it would have done another $30 million. And... I was waiting for the down payment, and guess what happened? What's that? The planes flew in to the Trade Center. Oh, boy. That day killed everything. I still got what we're going to do with that Napoleon Bonaparte exhibit. It would have been fantastic. But anyways, that's all in the past. Nothing I could do. 
Ori, let me go through a couple of names with you quickly of folks that you have known and uh, get your sort of 60-second uh, uh, take on each of them. A lot of people have seen the Netflix film The Irishman, the Martin Scorsese film. One of the more memorable characters in that film is Russell Buffalino, the uh, Joe Pesci character. As you alluded to earlier, you knew uh, Russell Buffalino. What exact? Who who was he? How did he, how did you find the cinematic depiction of him by Joe Pesci compared with the real life Russell Buffalino? Joe Pesci played him to a T. Joe did an excellent job of playing Russell. Russell was a true gentleman. I'll never forget, we had lunch at a place called DeMarco's on 40-something Street. He used to eat there all the time in New York. Uh, of course, he was out of Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, he was a close friend with Jimmy Cachi, too. Russell was. When he got arrested and they were transporting him to New York, uh, he ended up in Oneida County uh, at the sheriff's uh, jail there. And, you know, we were quite politically tied in up there. And uh, I would go with Frank Russo, who introduced me to Russell. Uh, we would bring him spaghetti and meatballs and things to the prison while he was there to eat. So much of the Irishman focuses on what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, J- Jimmy Hoffa, excuse me, the leader of the Teamsters, whose son is the leader of the Teamsters. Now, there's even some reports that they're digging up possible sites in New Jersey these days in the hopes of locating his remains. Do you have a theory or any knowledge about what happened with Jimmy Hoffa and his disappearance? And can you give us a clue as to uh, what you think happened? You know, that's a question that everybody that interviews asks me. And uh, one of the sites on Facebook, uh, one of the gangster groups that I belong to, somebody asked that. Nobody's ever going to find a body. Nobody's going to know who actually killed them because they're all dead. Everybody's going to say, I heard this, I heard that, it might be here, it might be there. That body does not exist. You got to remember, nobody's going to put a body in the trunk of a car and drive it to New York. No professional hitman is going to do that. That body, even the people at the restaurant don't know where the hell it's at. There were probably two people who knew, and they got rid of that body. Did it go through a crematorium? Did it go through a wood chipper? Those are your two best outs. But more than likely, it could have been, he could have been buried. And you know, remember, back in those days, uh, there were a lot of people bodied. There were double bodies and a lot mm. of coffins mm. because, you know, everybody knew somebody in the, uh, you know, in the funeral director's business. So the, that body's never going to be found. You also mentioned Frank Costello. How did you get to know Frank Costello? He's sort of a, a legendary figure in early American mafia circles. He's been called in some some circles the uh, prime minister of the of the mafia. How did you know Frank Costello? I got to meet Frank Costello also through Frank Russo. Uh, Frank Frank Costello's bro- had a brother that people don't talk about. His name was Eddie. Eddie was a real tough guy. And Frank was everything that people say. He was a gentleman like you can't believe. He's the guy that told me 
always be a gentleman. And, you know, I was a young kid when I met him. I met him at the Waldorf Hotel. And him and Frank Russo, they spoke in Italian. Uh, I'm Calabrian. Frank Russo's Calabrian. And uh, Frank Costello was a Calabrian also. We all come from the same part of the world, you know what I mean? And uh, that was the extent of me meeting him. You know, met him there. We had breakfast. They talked in Italian. I didn't know what the hell they were saying. But I was looking at all the girls, too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when Frank come over, put his hand on my shoulder. He says, son, always be a gentleman. Don't forget that. Ori, what is the status of organized crime in La Cosa Nostra these days? I I'm I don't think that there's much going on. Uh but then of course I've been out of it, so I wouldn't really know. And uh, you know, and that's the way I wanna keep it. I have a lot of respect for those guys. I talk to some of them. I talk to some of them who are in prison, who are doing life in prison. And, you know, they're good guys, they're great guys. I love them. And, you know, I'll be friends with them until I die. But, you know, uh, I don't have anything against them because, and I, you see, you hear me say this all, when we're together, you know, our whole thing is you got to hustle every day. You're trying to figure out who am I going to rob, who am I going to con, what am I going to do to make a dollar today? I mean, you got to remember, we don't have a paycheck coming on Friday from nobody, okay, like like citizens do. So we got to hustle every day. And I have a lot of respect for those guys. And, you know, particularly for the older guys. Has it changed through the years? It's absolutely changed. Uh, I hear stories that they're, you know, they're using text messaging and all this bullshit of, of communicating with each other. Uh, in today's world, I mean, shit, you know, even, I mean, I got a ticket a few weeks ago for a camera light running a red light. I mean, they got cameras all over. You can't get away with anything these days, that's for sure. You can't get away with anything. Yeah. Uh, l let me end with this, Ori. And you, you've got a great website, and I want to encourage people to check it out. It's called theaccidentalgangster.com. They could buy the book on there, as well as a lot of other things. One of the things that you're selling on there is one of the most creative things I've ever seen anyone sell. And I, I think I might try and steal this idea for myself. You're selling an autographed face mask, and what it looks like like is it looks like a almost like an old-fashioned death mask a mold of your face uh, tell you me know. about this autographed face mask and uh how this idea came to be well there was this gentleman out of florida that contacted me and he makes those and he happened to have an old one of frank sinatra and this guy on his own, he, he was going to Las Vegas. He was doing one on the lawyer there, Oscar Goodman. Everybody knows who Oscar Goodman is. Close, close friend of mine, been a regular on my programs over the years. Yeah, so uh, Oscar Goodman, uh, which, by the way, Oscar is doing a recipe for a cookbook by 
girl named Sandy Costa. Her husband was a big lawyer, uh, represented a lot of gangsters in Las Vegas. And they all used to go to her house. And she got everybody's recipes and stories. And she asked me to write a recipe for my pasta bolognese that I make. And uh, a story of my time in Las Vegas was I done, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a cookbook. I mean, she got Tony Spolazzo, she got Oscar Goodman's his favorite food. All right, and I mean, it's going to be an amazing book, and I wanted to put that out hey. and let people know. Watch out for that book that's coming out this year. That should be something. Uh, you could check out a, a lot Ori's book and even get a copy of his face at theaccidentalgangster.com. Do yourself a favor, check out the book. Ori, you got to let me know when you're in New York next, and we could do this in person. That'd be beautiful, Frank. Thank you. I love you. Like, thank you. Li- likewise, uh, my friend. All right. God bless you. God bless all your people back there in New York. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, check out the book, Accidental Gangster, From Insurance Salesman to Mob Boss of Hollywood. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio. Mm-hmm.